Whether you're a polyamateur or polyambitious, polyambiguous or polyam, I really hold your head high. Let your freaky flag fly, cause your polyamory should be uncensored. Hi there, and welcome to Polyamory Uncensored, a podcast where we, your hosts, Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams, interview a poly person each episode, and we try to answer the five points of journalism. Who, what, when, where, and why, as it pertains to our poly lives. Welcome to episode 75, part two of our listener questions episode. Stick with us as we discuss your questions about the good, the bad, the ugly, and the just plain complicated truths about our poly lives. Cool. All right. I'll take the first one. This one comes from Facebook. Considering that many people start from a position of monogamy before becoming poly, how do you break the habits or how does one break habits of OPP or OVP, meaning the one penis policy or the one vagina policy, I guess, uh, as it's generally a constant issue for many in the poly communities? Hmm. I would say that, oh gosh, it does not have to be an issue. Like if you want to open up your relationship, I would just say, beginning uh, with you like starting to talk about and discussing polyamory, don't talk about making a one penis or one vagina policy. That shouldn't be on the table. Like just uh, skip that step. Uh, (laughs) Easier said than done, I suppose, for some people, but but no, no relationship should start with policies that are regulating your body and choice of who you get to fall in love with, in my opinion. It sounds like what they're not saying is that, you know, it's set as a policy, but maybe is more like um, maybe the opening of the conversations for non-monogamy began with somebody's attraction, somebody's same sex attraction. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if there was initially consent for someone to pursue another woman or someone to pursue another man, um, you know, that didn't necessarily begin as a let's completely open up and become polyamorous, but began maybe in a narrower context. How do you continue to open that up or how do you continue to, um, you know, how do you how do you change agreements that you've already made? Right. Yeah. And they asked, how do you break the habits? So, yeah, that kind of makes sense of how how do you change things that have that you've already established as being the rules to the relationship and and that is really tough, right? Because uh, so many, it is normalized in our media and culture that polyamory means a guy and two girls, right? That's so often the stock images that people use. It's white, beautiful, affluent folks. And it's one dude sitting between two hot ladies, you know, and that's just like the thing people think polyamory is. And so often when we actually examine real couples and triads or quads or just dynamics and polycules in general, it doesn't almost ever look like that. Like triads are actually incredibly rare. Successful triads are incredibly rare. People searching for triads, maybe not not as rare, but actual triads is not really the dynamic that you see so often in poly communities. And I've actually been um, messaged by a local photographer who wanted to photograph 
um, poly folks, like for an artistic series. And they said, do you know any triads who want to be photographed? And I'm like, that's not the normal. That's uh, that's not the average um, coupling or that's not even right. Like, <laughs> that's not the, that average the average dynamic. Relationship dynamic. Relationship. Yeah. yeah, we I don't. And I was like, honestly, it was really hard for me to come up with a, a triad that I knew um, who was like out enough to be in a, a, a photo series because I was just like, most people date separately. Most people um, that, yeah, it's just, it's, it's not the average. Uh, so I just think she gave up on that hope of doing that photo series because it was hard. But um, so I think because of our, our culture, we think that like, this is normal to have a one penis policy. And I hope it's changing that that is like the normalized thing that maybe opening up your relationship and dating other people is because we're it's so often talked about as something that you should do. Hopefully that's changing. But I do I do agree that like um, in in even just like Facebook world, OPPs are almost they're not encouraged. I would not say that they're encouraged, but they're kind of normalized in this way that I hope is changing because one penis policies, not even, uh, you know, getting to the fact that they're horribly transphobic and disgusting on other levels, but literally saying you can't date anyone that you want to date is not polyamory. You know, polyamory is openly loving the people who you want to love and putting restrictions on that. It just really goes against everything that polyamory is. So if your relationship started with an OPP, I would just really examine with your partner with open honest communication what you think polyamory is and what you think it should be because if you think it is just dating one person with a certain set of genitals as problematic in different ways as that is um that to a lot of folks that's not necessarily polyamory right and so if you want open loving partnerships with who you want I would really communicate that with your partner because that's what polyamory is and should be not you only get polyamory. You only get loving relationships with a certain person that I have in my mind. Um, and then in general, I just think that that kind of restriction is abusive or it's a huge red flag, minimum, huge red flag that saying like, well, you can't date someone with a certain genetic component is like saying you can't date someone taller than me you can't date someone younger than me you can't date, you know like where does it end because it's it's just it's problematic on a lot of in a lot of ways but it's also a silly concept it's also super like it why i think it's easy for us to kind of say that because we haven't ever really been in that kind of position. Yeah. But i think you know it's it is more difficult to change agreements than to make agreements in the first place. And so really, I mean, in a sort of practical way, you're going to have to have some of those sort of scary conversations again, mm -hmm. presumably maybe like one did in first deciding to open up, like, you know, maybe there's jealousy or insecurity. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of stereotypes about why men are insecure about things and um, you don't want to run around reinforcing those. But to be able to sort of say, like, look, 
what I love about you has nothing to do with the size of your dick (laughs) or the fact that you even have one. Right. right? Exactly. (laughs) Like I, you know, we have this relationship and I value this relationship. And I also want to be able to explore other relationships without the restrictions that we first negotiated. And, um, you know, I want, I understand like jealousy is normal and those sort of insecurities are real, but we can't let them dictate how we live our lives. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and what can we do to help mitigate the concerns that aren't controlling my other relationships? Yeah. Delving into insecurity, I mean, in all aspects of a relationship is really important. What are you insecure about? Is is it actually about a penis? Because oftentimes that's not where it is. It's, you know, are you afraid someone's going to leave you? Are you afraid of being replaced? Are you afraid of you know, what, where are your fears rooted? And let's talk about that. And let's get over that first, because it's really probably not about a penis or a vagina or whatever. You know, it's it's about other things. Because ultimately, does that matter? Why does that matter to you? Yeah. Like communi- it all comes down to communication, as we often, often say. It's pretty much the answer to every single question we get. <laughs> you want to take the next one? Sure. What do you do if your wife is always kicking you out of your bed to be with her boyfriend? This one comes up a lot, I think, in, in a lot of poly communities. This, well, one, the idea of a, a sacred bed space, you know, and, and should you be allowed to have your own? And I think actually in one of our other listener episodes, we talked about that, like your sacred space. And I think if you only have one bed and that's the bed you sleep in, no one should be allowed to kick you out of it. Um, But there's also this kind of privilege in being able to have a guest bedroom, you know, like we have a guest bedroom, we have other beds or a big nice couch or whatever, like we have other space. So I do firmly believe that like, no one is allowed to kick me out of my bed. That's my bed. But if I'm not there, if I'm at my partner's house, I don't consider my bed a sacred space. If I'm not home, or if I'm or if I choose to sleep in the guest bedroom, which I have done before, um, my bed is not a sacred space and my husband is absolutely allowed to do to use it with whoever you know um but that's not the case for some people some people do feel like there is a uh like an ownership of their bed and their space and i kind of think that those are maybe boundary or at the very least uh preference guidelines that you need to communicate with your partner if you don't want someone to use your space or if there's kind of guidelines like changing the sheets or you know taking showers or something beforehand um, that you want to express to your partner based on your preferences Um, but being kicked out of your bed is a different story honestly Um, because where are you expected to sleep if you don't have a guest bed where right. are your partners expected to sleep if you don't have a guest bed or best bedroom? Uh, and that and can it, be tough. it feels also like maybe this is something where there's a breakdown in negotiation. Like if there is only one bed, your wife legitimately wants to have sex with her boyfriend. You legitimately need to be able to sleep and have a reasonable expectation to be able to sleep in your bed. Um, you know, having some kind of like, 
okay, you know, on Thursday nights, I'll sleep on the couch and your boyfriend can come over and be in bed with you or, you know, or some kind of whatever negotiated use of this space that feels workable to both of you mm-hmm. seems like it's it's going to just have to happen, you know, and I don't know why her boyfriend's place isn't available. Right. But- and that's the other thing. Could you go to another partner's house? Um, could could this wife go to her boyfriend's house? Do you ever sleep over at one of your partner's houses, in which case then the bed is kind of freed up? Um, and that's not always going to happen. Maybe they don't have partners. Maybe they're solo or monopoly, right? Like, what if you're monogamous? You don't yeah. have that option of going to another partner's. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's really tricky. But there has to be some kind of like, hopefully compromise. What if their boyfriend doesn't have um their own bed, you know, like these things kind of compound on one another. Sometimes it can definitely be complicated. And, um, you know, I don't want to diminish the, the complication or the emotional impact of that. And there's got to be some way where your experience isn't, I'm always being kicked out of bed. Yeah. Because it seems unlikely that, that is your wife and her boyfriend's intent for you to feel if that is their intent, that's a different problem and a different dynamic and needs to be addressed in a more serious way. But if they just, you know, are spending time together and want to go have sex, like that's an understandable desire, obviously. And you have to find some way to balance everybody's needs so that, they have some opportunity to have sex and really even have some opportunity to have sex in your wife's space. Like she may really like having sex in her own bed, but it can't be only like, it can't be constantly at the cost of your ability to be in your own bed. Also, on the other hand, it probably can reasonably be sometimes at that cost. Like, There's got to be a way to negotiate it so everybody's needs are at least mostly being met. Right. The compromise could be that, you know, maybe the bed could be used for sex, but that the partner doesn't sleep over, you know, and so then therefore you get to sleep in your own bed at the very least. Um, And that might have some issues with like, well, then you got to change the sheets or you got to do something, you know, whatever your preference might be. Um, Or if the compromise is, okay, I sleep on the couch on um, Thursdays when your partner comes and sleeps over, knowing that, well, my girlfriend might come over one of these nights and you you get to sleep on the couch on those nights because we only have one bed. Um, so even if you don't have a partner, maybe that's a, a future compromise that knowing that to make things fair, you know, there are going to be some couch days for you too. <laughs> so right. um, until... Which point when we, you know, maybe have another bed that we can throw in a space, the basement, the attic, you know, whatever this, you know, my office or whatever. Couch someday Mm -hmm. instead of the couch that we currently have, you know, whatever. Right. Because and so there are a lot of privileges that, you know, some poly people have that others don't. But sometimes when you're talking about opening up a relationship, you do have to think about these things like 
or even or just like moving you know when we moved into the house that we're in now we specifically thought okay well we're gonna have um an extra bedroom which again then became our daughter's room so that like we had to reorganize when we had a child well okay we don't have a guest bedroom anymore what are we going to do and my you know my office space um, became a bedroom and then our bedroom became more of a like storage office space that happened to have a bed in it so like we still have two beds spaces but one of them is surrounded by yarn (laughs) so (laughs) it's you know like so I specifically was like okay I want this I want the entire upstairs to be dedicated to not only our yarn but also our pod pod uh, casting space but that like but that bed even though it takes up space has to be there because Sometimes we're going to need two beds, you know, and uh, I want to be respectful to my partner sleeping, being able to sleep. And honestly, sleep is so incredibly important and being kicked out of your space to sleep anywhere else, whether it's a guest bedroom, whether it's the couch, whether it's an air mattress on the floor, you are not going to get adequate sleep if it's not your bed. And sleep is incredibly valuable. That's something that I'm learning more and more as I age. Sleep is so important. It's more important than diet. It's more important than exercise. It's more important than like anything. It's so incredibly important. So like kicking someone out of their space where they can comfortably sleep into any other space means that they are going to sacrifice sleep and that sucks. So, um, so That's yeah, a they're... really funny point that you made because um, yesterday before, so we were talking early. I missed. This is the second podcast that we're recording today, and I was late for the first one. And part of why I was late is yesterday I started cleaning my closet. And then it got later and I had evening plans. And so I left my bed massively heaped with everything that used to be in my closet. And when I got home, I went into my room and I'd forgotten, of course, because now it's late at night. And I was like, oh, shit, I can't even do it. I tried to, like, clear a little space to, like, just lie down like this and go to sleep. And it just I like. An hour later, I was like, "Okay, I'm going under the couch. But it's you're right. I was groggy all morning. I was late for podcasting like sleep. Statistically, if you're even sleeping in a hotel, you can't fall asleep as, as easily or as well. So sleeping on the couch and I have had those instances where like my partner has a a, or my husband has a partner over and they want to use the bed. And I'm like, you know what? You guys have at it. I'm going to sleep on the couch. That's fine. And I didn't sleep at all. Like I just never fell asleep. And that sucked a lot. And it was something that I chose to do. I wasn't being kicked out or whatever. I just was like, yeah, you guys, you know, there's two of you, one of me. I'm going to take the couch. And I did not fall asleep. And those were kind of instances where I was like, oh, a guest bedroom is incredibly important. We need to make this work. We need to clean out the basement and make it, you know, we need to do something because... Um, sleeping on the couch isn't going to work for us. And, uh, and then there were instances in which we had a futon in our basement and, and my husband and I are like not tall people. We're both five, six. So the futon worked for us. But when I dated a guy who was six, five, that futon did not work for him. 
he slept he slept over one time and was like hey guess what i'm never gonna do that again i'm sorry if you ever want to have an overnight it's got to be at my house <laughs> i was like okay good to know like he's literally like head and legs were hanging off like it would just oh. did not work <laughs> so yeah so um I don't know. Yeah. So finding accommodations and compromises is so important with this kind of stuff. And hopefully you're able to either work out another bed space or another space entirely, you know, going to someone else's house. Or maybe there's like the special occasion when you can get a hotel if you can afford that kind of thing or or an Airbnb or something. Um, But yeah, you really got to communicate with your partner, your needs and sleep is a big need it's incredibly important. So mm-hmm. understanding the value of sleep is important. Absolutely. It is yeah. your turn. Okay. What was something you wish you'd known when you started your journey into polyamory? And when did you learn it? Ooh, do you have a good answer? I do. Um, <laughs> I've talked a little bit before sometimes about my first experience with polyamory being um with a couple where I was the unicorn and um, I had never even occurred to me that that was a thing, right? I was pretty young. I mean, like I was in my early twenties, but I was a lot younger than I am now. And I was swept up in the sort of excitement and novelty of it. And that had me also be really vulnerable to just being willing to try to be what they wanted instead of entering into that relationship as an equal, Um, you know, like they had their agreement and these are the rules. And if you want to be in this relationship with us, you know, you have to agree to our rules. And it just didn't occur to me to decline or to, attempt to negotiate at the very beginning. And so I really wish I would have known more about what ethical non-monogamy looked like and that I could confidently negotiate for myself the kinds of relationships that I wanted. Now, I was just as... So I ran screaming from that relationship and declared that I was, you know, okay, Learned a lot from that experience. Clearly not Polly. <laughs> um, but I then went and replicated that same trying to fit myself into somebody else's, you know, square peg, round hole um, in monogamous relationships because I just hadn't learned about myself enough to really be committed to having a relationship that was going to be healthy for me. Um, and I really didn't learn that until I was divorced from my monogamous marriage and knew I could not force myself into somebody else's box anymore and then had to figure out like, okay, well, what do I want? And how do I even learn the vocabulary for what I want? And um, that's definitely what led me ultimately back into polyamory, but from a much more informed perspective and much more understanding what my own needs are. I think my answer is going to be almost exactly the same in that um, the thing I wish I had known how to do even just throughout my entire twenties is advocate for myself um, and to not only be able to ask for what I want, but to know what I want, which took a while to figure out. Um, It took probably 
my first three or four or five polyamorous relationships that to not just cater to my partner and what they wanted, um, but to figure out what I wanted and then be able to ask for it and then do what I wanted. Uh, so like, um, yeah, I think I went through a string of people where I was like, what do you need in your relationship? And how do I become the exact thing that you need, transform myself into what they wanted instead of what I wanted, and then um, cater to their needs, and then not even really think about for a moment what I wanted and how they should change for me or not to change and just, you know, get out of that relationship and be with someone who I wanted to be with, you know? Uh, so yeah, that took a long time. And I don't know that that's not an easy thing to, to come to. So I think that everyone kind of has to, to get there on their own. Um, but I, I wish I had, I, I kind of do wish in some way, shape or form I could speak to, you know, like, uh, really early on, Polly Lindsay or early dating Lindsay and be like, oh, you don't have to make yourself into what they want. You should figure out what you want, make yourself into who you want to be. Um, and they will come around. The people who, <laughs> the people who, you, who you should be with uh, will like that version of Lindsay, will like that person and will love you. Um, you don't have to transform yourself into what they will want because the person that all of these guys that I was dating in my early 20s, the person they wanted um, wasn't me, you know, and that would should have been a really good indication that that wasn't a good relationship. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, when you're just starting out dating, you don't know that. I don't know. For, I think especially with my own like baggage of bad self-confidence, I was just happy to be dating. And so and I was, yeah. Yeah, you, we've you. talked about that before, right? Yep. Yeah, like low confidence. I was just like, oh, but someone likes me. So that's cool. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure they continue to like me, including being someone else, someone who's not me. Mm -hmm. So um, so that would be the thing that I wish I had known. Like I can be myself and people will still find me <laughs> attractive and cool. Um, in fact, more so than the person who just wants to be what someone else wants them to be. Yeah. Yeah. Realizing that the dating pool is enthusiastic and there are like, it's not always easy to find a great relationship, but it is not that difficult for assigned female at birth women identifying people to date. No, even you know, whether you're fish in the sea skinny <laughs> or fat or, you know, old or young, like there's people who want to date you. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not necessarily always easy to meet people online if you are outside of a more narrow idea of attractive femininity. But in real life, people want to date you. Right. Whoever you are, there's somebody uh, that people at least want to try. Like, again, they might not be the right person, but there's plenty of people who would like to date you. And, and again, I, I was one of those people who said, well, yeah, but not me, you know. Right. And so if yeah. you're thinking that, too, I was like that. I was that person. And I was like, well, yeah, they want to date the other girls, but they don't want to date me. And, and it was just because I was 
surrounding myself with the wrong people. I was not in the right crowds or I was just, you know, a home alone most of the time. Honestly, I wasn't in any crowd. I was home alone, just assuming people don't want me because I'm not with them or whatever, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not putting myself in the ocean so I can't find the other fish. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a perfect, perfect metaphor. All right. Well, I will tackle that one, uh, at least to read the question. As solo poly, I struggle with having to adjust when my partners visit, usually for a few days at a time, because they take up space and my energy in my quote unquote cave. And with having adjusted to their presence and being heartbroken that then they have to leave. I know that I want to live alone. And but I have been contemplating how to make adjustments when they arrive and when they've left, how to make it easier on myself. And just to be clear, I use solo poly in the definition of not wishing to enmesh my life with that of my partners or ride the relationship escalator that you usually and that you usually live alone. But I can have a deep and committed relationship. Totally relate. <laughs> I thought you would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my question right there. Um, literally this week, um, I had a partner visiting from out of town and they were here for a couple of days and then they left. And so I, I absolutely am right there in the space of the questioner. And it is hard. Transitions are hard. Um, you know, uh, this is somebody who I've been in a relationship with for a very long time, um, but it's still always like, oh, no, my house is a mess. I'm embarrassed. And they're like, I don't care. I'm not looking at your house. <laughs> and, you know, it's and it's awful then also when they leave and it's really sad and I miss them. And, um, you know, that readjustment is really difficult, too. Um I don't think that there's a way to not have that. I think you just have to be generous with yourself and understanding that that's what relationships look like. And you have all of that build up and excitement for they're coming to visit. They're going to be here. It's going to be, you know, a little scary, but mostly great. And then they're going to go away again for the next however long of a time they go away for. Um, in my case, I don't know, the next six months. I mean, it's we don't get to see each other very often. Um, and you have to decide for yourself, I guess, if that's the price of admission that you're willing to pay. Um, for me, in this relationship, I have decided that. Um, but, I, you know, it's, it's such an intimately personal decision. And I can imagine that depending on what else is going on in life, sometimes you might decide, I just can't do that right now. Right now, that roller coaster is too much for me and I need them to delay their visit because I need this piece of my life to stay steady. And, but, you know, that's such a individual question. Well, I think sometimes that can change whether permanently or not, right? I, I was I was reading Dr. Liz Powell's Building Open Relationships and they identify as solo polyamorous and they do not want to live with another partner. But when they are in NRE, they do want to live with that other partner. And they know this about themselves because they've had many relationships where they move in within the first like, you know, six months or so. 
um, maybe even the first month or whatever, because they're so excited about the relationship. They're so in love and they want to be as close for as long a period of time as possible with this person. And then that NRE wears off and they're like, wait, I don't like living with people. I actually hate it. And it ends up destroying the relationship in different ways. Right. And apparently in, I, you know, it was, it's been a while since I read the book, but one of them, their partners moved like across the country to live with them. And it wasn't until they moved in that they were like, Oh, I'm remembering now I'm solo poly for a reason. I don't do this. I hate it. And so that was really unfortunate and unfair to them. And they, they realized I can't do this to people. I cannot live with someone. So as much as I want to, as much as I miss them when they leave, I cannot live with another person. This is something that's like a, a boundary and why I am doing solo poly. And so I think, you know, having someone visit and then feeling really heartbroken when they leave makes sense because you do want to be close to that person because you do love them. But if you truly do feel that you don't want to enmesh your life with someone because you're solo poly and you don't want to live with another person, you know, knowing that maybe these feelings will change over time or maybe NRE has something to do with it and just kind of keep telling yourself that like, this is because of who I am. This is because I don't want to live with another person. Or knowing that maybe things will change. You know, I know that Katie, during the pandemic, you were like, I'm solo poly. I don't live with another person, but this is really fucking hard. Right. And, and mm -hmm. I don't know if at that time you would have changed things or if you did. Right? I mean, I didn't, but yeah. it definitely opened my eyes to the fact that I, life isn't static and what I want and what works for me under one set of circumstances might not be what will always work for me and be what I want. Right. Maybe having a, an, a nesting partner would have been different or I don't know. Right. Nice I mean, it really would have been different. Maybe yeah. it would have been better. I don't know. Yeah. Right. And I'm not in those circumstances, so I can't know. But it definitely like my kids are older. And so I'm starting to be able to imagine what it's going to be like when they are adults and don't live with me anymore and think about like, hmm, maybe at that point I will think about having a nesting partner, you know, and I don't know, but. Will the house be way too quiet? <laughs> right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, is it mentally healthy for me to not ever have people just around like my kids aren't always around because it's a divorce situation, but they're around on a regular enough basis that it, you know, I have to wash the dishes. I have to, you know, do the adulting functions of life. And maybe I would not be so mentally healthy if I didn't have that. Yeah. And it's okay to change your mind if you want to down the road and you're like, you know, a nesting partner actually would be amazing. It's also, I think, totally okay to consider yourself solo poly still with a nesting partner. It might be a little bit complicated, right? But I think if you were to come at it as I'm going to be roommates with a partner and then still have separate spaces entirely, that that would be manageable and you could still be solo poly. <laughs> you know, maybe some people would have an argument with that or whatever, but like, I think you could still live your life as a solo poly person in your own space, much like you would with a roommate, because even if you have a roommate, you can be solo poly, right? <laughs> like, cool, um, obviously, yeah. yeah. And I think really also just recognizing that the choices we make in life are 
not static, forever unchanging choices. And as our needs change, we may have to make different choices. And that doesn't, I don't want to invalidate anybody who's totally clear on they are solely po- solo poly forever. That could completely be true. Just mm-hmm. like you can legitimately be completely committed to a lifelong marriage and be polyamorous. And not everyone falls on either of those categories and some people's needs and desires, you know, are more fluid. Mm -hmm. One other thing I did want to mention is when it comes to partners who are not super long distance. And so like, you're not, you're not seeing them once every six months, but maybe you're seeing them once a week. Is there a way to maybe make some part of your space theirs, like giving them a drawer or a part of your closet or, a part of the refrigerator, you know, something like, oh, the coffee creamer they like is here, you know, or whatever. Um, like, is there a way to do that without feeling like your space is being invaded? Well, I obviously can't speak for everybody uh, on that, but I think that's a really nice idea. And I do think one of the things that is challenging for when you are a person who is solo poly and you don't want to be on a relationship escalator, but you also do want to acknowledge a certain amount of long-term kind of serious elements of a relationship, looking for different kinds of milestones that can kind of mark that um, makes a lot of sense. And what that looks like is obviously going to vary quite a bit across individuals. Um, You know, I know one of my partners and I both had a moment of being very excited about um, them having a toothbrush at my house. Right. And, um, you know, I can imagine the idea, like I, I like the idea of figuring out how to carve out space and have those kinds of acknowledgements. I don't necessarily have a good idea of what they might look like, but, um, you know, or in another example, um, uh, one of my metas uh, is a big beer drinker and has sort of made a point of when I come over, like I have this beer and I think you're really going to like it, Mm. you know, and like it's there, they have a conversation in their relationship of like, Oh, you know, I got this kind of beer because I think Katie will really like, like, oh, that's so cute. I feel so acknowledged and welcomed. And it's just really like a nice way of having the relationship be affirmed, not just by my partner, but by their nesting partner is it's not something that I would have expected or anticipated or even thought to ask for, but it was such a wonderful feeling of acknowledgement and inclusion. Um, I have had a, um, a solo poly partner get me a toothbrush. And I thought that was because occasionally, you know, maybe randomly once a month or something, I'd sleep over, but it was really interesting because it, it was almost like this weird defining moment, you know, like, Oh, you have a thing that is always going to be at my house. But it was also really funny because 
he had to color code because he had a toothbrush and his partner had a toothbrush. I had a toothbrush and his other partner had a toothbrush. So it was like, well, you're blue. I'm orange. <laughs> They're red, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, and it was really funny because, you know, ostensibly he lived alone, but there were always four toothbrushes, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I kind of loved that. It was like a little, it was like, this is like a little art piece, you know, <laughs> like to a polyamory. Right, exactly. That's <laughs> a lovely. I really like that. That's yeah. so adorable and charming. So, yeah. So there are little ways that you can carve out a, a place for your partner, even in subtle, tiny ways. And I think maybe if they're over regularly, some kind of like drawer or, you know, something that would be only theirs would be nice. Um, but I think that's going to always depend on another person. Not having to pack a bag every time was nice or being able to have an extra pair of tennis shoes or something uh, that you can just leave at someone's house. As long as it's not totally encroaching on your space, because I know that that can be, and depending on your own preferences, could be like, um, you know, one thing could be too much, you know. <laughs> So. Right. Yeah, it's going to be very individual, but I really like I like those kinds of, you know, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be something physical, like maybe it's, you know, we are making plans to go out of town together or to, you know, develop a thing that's like our thing that we do. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways that emotional space could be carved out as well as physical space. Totally. Yeah. All right. We have one more question. And I think this is actually um, kind of an interesting one is we are both parents, but we both have very different relationships with our co-parent. So this question uh, coming from Facebook is what is the best and most simple way to explain to any and every partner that your child's other parent is one that you will never be rid of how, no matter how they feel. <laughs> so this is interesting for me because my co-parent is my husband and and in a lot of ways um even though we don't do hierarchy poly like they are they have a lot of labels in my life right they're my co-parent they live with me but they're my nesting partner they're yeah they're just they're my husband you know they have all these labels that make them like a kind of primary component in my life so they won't ever be out of my life you know like it just in in every way my child who is, you know, like probably my first primary relationship, most important relationship, that's their other parent. The, my child will always be in my life. My co-parent will always be in my life. Um, but you do have a different relationship. You're not living with your, your uh, co-parents. So how does that differ for you? Yeah, that's really an interesting question. Um, it hasn't come up in my life in the same way that the question implies, but my ex-wife um, has a very time-consuming job and an unusual and fairly intense schedule. And that has an impact on me, on my children, and on my other relationships. And it changed a little bit during the sort of peak of the pandemic, um, and then they got a different, crazy, time-consuming, weird hours job. <laughs> and, um, and so it continued to have a dramatic impact on my relationships. And then they got their old job back because life started to come back to having, 
you know, things happen and nor- elements of normality began to return and uh, and she was recalled back to her job. Um, and although it initially was a little bit less crazy than it had been, it's rapidly returning to its original highly demanding many, many hours. And that's that's not going to change. It's not going to be less inconvenient, really, until my kids are grown and out of the house. And even then, honestly, like, you know, it's going to impact when they come home on vacation. Holidays. Yeah. I was thinking that, too, because I was like, it's not just like an 18 year commitment. (laughs) It really isn't. Like At least it will have less of a all the time, every week, intense impact. So how do you communicate that? I think you just have to be really straightforward. Like, you know, I am a single parent and I have primary responsibility for my children and how that looks. I'm very kitchen table. So my children have met my partners. They do know what the relationship is. Um, I'm very open with them. And for the most part, the kids are completely fine with it. Um, The only exception really is that I have one child who's very deeply introverted. And so it's stressful for him to have a lot of people (laughs) around. (laughs) And because of the nature of the kitchen tableness. Um, not only are my partners sometimes around, but so are my metamors and other parts of our chosen family. And sometimes that's a lot of people who might be over for a holiday meal or a, you know, holiday break activity. And, um, you know, my child then needs to really find a way to engage just a little bit, but, not be overwhelmed and have a way to be able to retreat. I don't think for me, I could have a serious relationship that didn't understand that that's how it is to be in a relationship with me. And it doesn't have anything to do with them. Um, I can maybe imagine that it takes some time to develop that connection and that ability to sort of work with my time constraints and life constraints. One of the things that's been super challenging and I think is super challenging for at least one of my existing partners is, um, you know, whether everybody is comfortable spending the night when my kids are here. We haven't done that. Mm. That hasn't been a thing. And I can't imagine that it will never happen, but none of us is yet comfortable mm-hmm. and 100% that includes the kids though they have not been invited into a conversation about it but i you know kids do not want to think about their parents having sex and that is completely fair and i don't want to make them think about that and i think it highly unlikely that there would be super sexy fun times in an overnight while my kids were here mm-hmm. um but i think that it's still something that, you know, everybody would kind of be thinking about. And so there's that like, okay, we've got to figure out how comfortable we are even to just have that 
live in-person thought process. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then also there's, you know, conversations with my ex about, you know, like how much do you disclose to an ex about who's spending time with your children? And I have more of a, it's none of your business feeling than a, we must tell, and there are rules and you have to wait six months before you can introduce somebody to your children. And you have to introduce them to the ex first and get their seal of approval. And like there's, I mean, I've been in relationships where that was a rule. The ex needed to meet me before I could meet the child. I'm like um, so loosey goosey that I just was like, oh, what? what are you talking about? That's so weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just like, who um, cares? The six month thing is very common in divorce yeah. situations. I've heard that um, from people I've dated and stuff. Yeah. Um, personally, I think it's, a, it's obviously really arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, would I want to introduce somebody as a super serious person who's going to be part of your life much before that? Probably not. But, you know, as like there's some adults around and one of them happens to be this person, like, you know, the kids don't care. It doesn't even really. Right. Often they do not care. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, exactly. Like they're like, okay, yeah, mom has adults around our house. There's people in mom's life like, you know, hi, nice to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) Like I can have a polite, completely uninterested relationship. (laughs) So, um. But I also do feel like it's a little different when something has become more serious. And um, especially with my first poly relationship, um, it was a friendship that evolved into more of a relationship. And the kids had an existing relationship with my partner and my metas because Mm -hmm. we had all been friends and all like gone to the movies together and done stuff together. And um one of my metas worked at the school that one of my children attended. And so I felt then like, yeah, I probably do have to disclose this relationship because I don't want to put the kids in a position of feeling like there's something that they have to keep a secret. I I don't want there to be a vibe of this is a secret big deal. Right. And, you know, maybe even forcing kids to like lie about things. Right. That's yeah. Never, that that's never doesn't cool. feel right to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I get the idea of discretion and trying to teach kids, like, maybe let's think about who we're talking about this with, but definitely not a, but you can't. Yeah. Like, well, and I think it, interestingly, I think this question kind of, it doesn't only apply, but mostly applies to partners who don't have kids. Um, like, as in, I could only imagine somebody being like, hey, you need to not have a relationship with your co-parent unless they don't have a co-parent, you know, because they they would know better, you know, like, they, like of course you're going to have to have a relationship with the person who is also the parent of your child. Like, that just makes sense logically. But if you don't have any kids, maybe you would never have thought about that, you know. And so, I, you know, one piece of advice would be like, date more parents, <laughs> date people with kids because they would know better. Like they would know you would absolutely have to have a relationship with your co-parent. Even more broadly than that, dating someone who ever tells you that you have to quote unquote, get rid of another relationship is a huge red flag. You know, whether it's your best friend, whether it's your co-parent, your another partner, your mom, you know, like it, it doesn't matter 
But if your partner is saying you have to get rid of another person, if you can't have a relationship with another person, they're abusive. They're trying to control your life. Doesn't matter who they're talking about. And and it doesn't even matter if that relationship with the other person is bad. Because sometimes there are really messy, like divorce or co-parent things happening, you know, whatever the case may be. That person is in your life. And if you need them to be in your life for whatever reason, that's your choice. And if someone else is trying to force you to, again, the, the verbiage they use is get rid of, um, if they're trying to force you to do that, then honestly, you probably need to get that person out of your life because they're no good. They are controlling. I'm going to offer a slightly different perspective on that piece, which is, I think, you know, sometimes we have relationships that are super unhealthy and toxic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we often tell people like, yeah, you know, if they're not going to be supportive of you, you don't need them in there in your life. And I can imagine from a compassionate point of view, somebody that you're in a relationship saying like that person is so bad for you. They're so bad for your kids. Like you, you need to, you know, you need to cut them loose. Like this isn't good for you. And unfortunately that's not available when you have minor children. Mm -hmm. Um, And believe me, probably the person would like to get rid of somebody who's that toxic and terrible and uh, ex, but still the parent of their child. And the legal system makes that very, very legally. You can't. Yeah. I mean, Um, I have a friend who's who's co-parent literally whose ex-husband literally like kidnapped her children, went across state lines and tried to like take them away from her. And luckily she got her kids back. But um, the state literally still legally recognizes him as their parent. Right. Because he is (laughs) and gives him rights to seeing her kids. And he's a total, total bag of shit. He's a total piece of shit. But um, but legally, he will always be in her life unless he's put in prison or something, you know, like <laughs> fingers crossed that that happens one day because he is totally horrible. But legally, like you don't have a lot of rights when it comes to not to, to getting rid of, quote unquote, a person who has legal rights to your children. Yeah. No matter what, and- unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, and setting boundaries that you would like to set sometimes isn't possible. Yeah. Um, You know, like I'm sure your friend would dearly love to be like, whoop. Yeah. And the example, I was thinking of a, a very similar example of a friend of mine who um, was able to get the court to let her move out of state with their children. Um, but the, you know, father has the right to extended visitations and all of these things and, um, you know, is actively trash talking mom, um, trying to really convince the kids that everything that's wrong in their life is mom's fault. And like, in theory, the justice system frowns on people doing that, but gaining enforcement of that takes a lot of time and a lot of money and is not a certainty even under the worst circumstances. Yeah. And so you really have to figure out coping strategies for what you're stuck with rather than being able to draw the boundaries that you 
would choose in a perfect world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and on a much lighter note, like, you know, I've certainly had frustrations in dealing with my ex and her crazy schedule and, you know, have partners who have shared my occasional venting about my ex's priorities and um, choices around childcare and being a responsible parent. Um, you know, I think you have to have room to let everybody vent and the burden is, should not be always on the parent to support the other partners venting, like find somebody else to vent to unless it's clearly welcomed because I already know what the burden is and the burden, I know it's a burden on you, but trust me, it's a bigger burden on me. Yeah. The parent. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and which is not to say for any of my partners who are listening, I'm not saying any of you have done anything wrong. I've just, I'm thinking about that like grief circle graphic where you're like, you know, you don't, you it, seek support outwards and provide support inwards. Mm-hmm. Like, so when people, you know, have suffered a loss, like you don't turn to the person who's the spouse or the parent or the child and depend on them for supporting you in your feelings about the loss. You provide the support inwards and you seek the support outwards. Mm. And I'd say that's kind of a similar thing for, um, you know, when you're dealing with a situation that is a problem and it's an an intractable problem, provide the support to the person who's the most impacted by whatever that problem is and seek support from other sources. Yeah, that's a good idea. All right. So we do probably have a couple more questions that came in after I had um, already like started recording and posting and stuff like that. So uh, I gathered them all up in a little document, but I know I didn't get all of them. So eventually we will do this again and it'll be great. But I think we have answered quite a few questions and now over two episodes. So look forward to doing this again, maybe closer to episode 100. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Or sometime when we don't have a guest. Or just don't have a guest. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're good episodes for that. Exactly. Well, this was fun. Um, I hope that people found our answers helpful. If there's something that you agreed with, disagreed with, think we completely screwed up, like, please, you know, be in communication with us. To, and, um, you know, we're always interested in your feedback. Um, maybe we screwed something up so badly that you feel the burning need to be a guest. I was and- just thinking that I was like, these could all be guests. <laughs> these could all be episodes. So if any of you who actually submitted these questions want to come on and talk about it in depth as its own episode, that would be really cool too. Yeah. And same with those of you whose questions we didn't get to, like, I'm sure that some of those questions would also make a great episode. So we're not rejecting you reach out again and, you know, let us know that you'd like to do that. Yeah. Actually, when asking for questions, I specifically got a lot of comments that were just topics. And I was like, that's not a question, but good idea for a topic. So so maybe next time. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Lindsay. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks, Katie. Okay. Bye. Bye. And that is it from us at Polyamory Uncensored. We have been Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams. We'd like to thank podcast husband Rob for being our sound engineer. And thank you, Lindsay, for editing this podcast so that we sound smart. 
You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Polyamory Uncensored. Contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com if you have a listener question or a comment. And if you'd like to support us at all, you can send us a monthly contribution at anchor.fm slash polyamoryuncensored and simply click on the support this podcast button. If you'd like to support the podcast with a one-time contribution, we've set up a PayPal link to make it super easy. Thank you for your support in any amount at paypal.me slash polyamoryuncensored. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember, we love you. Bye.